You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. days left to figure out what your New Year's resolutions are. And uh, for those of you who do New Year's resolutions, and if you need any help trying to figure out, you know, what your resolutions are going to be for the new year, the National Products Industry Health Monitor, which is a a marketing research group, um, did a ton of research to see what's trending for New Year's resolutions in 2021. And in this case, they actually surveyed thousands of Americans from uh, all different parts of the country, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different religious backgrounds, and they basically ask one question. What are your goals for 2021? Like, what things do you want to put in place to improve the quality of your life and help you grow into and become like a healthier, more whole, happier, better human being in the year to come? And then they took all this research, um, all their findings, and compared it with similar research that's being done in other countries. And what they found, what they discovered, is the number one trend, not just in America, but around the globe, is that everybody's top goals for 2021 center around the pursuit of mental and emotional health. Um, the, the question that we all seem to be asking, according to this report, is how do I become a more emotionally healthy, emotionally stable, emotionally resilient person in 2021, like the kind of person who knows how to navigate the undercurrent of feelings that are running throughout my body all the time. Like, I don't know if you realize this, but right now in this moment, you got stuff cooking inside of you and you brought that stuff into this room with you. How do I become the kind of person that can navigate the emotional pain that I carry, the anxiety and the fear and the, the terror of abandonment, the, the grief, that, the loss that I don't want to face, the disappointment? That I've, that I've endured in my life, like the, the sense of shame and worthlessness that for some reason follows me everywhere I go, like I never feel like I'm good enough, like all this stuff that's cooking inside of us. The question everybody seems to be asking, especially coming out of a year like 2020, is how do I become the kind of person who is, first of all, aware of that and who has the skills and the ability to calm the emotional storm that's brewing inside of me? And, and again, what all this research is just picking up on is all this makes sense when you, when you consider the weariness and the emotional impact that we're carrying coming out of a year like 2020. Um, all the civil unrest and the riots, the anxiety and, and like pure rage and fear and terror around the political divide, like record-breaking natural disasters and hurricanes and wildfires. And on top of all that, you have this all this stress related to a global pandemic. It really is no exaggeration to say we're coming off of the heels of one of the most emotionally devastating and traumatic years in world history. And, don't take my word for it, a lot of people are writing about this. Um, For example, we'll put some stuff on the screen for you. Uh, The CDC did a broad survey of 5,470 adults from all over the U.S., and they compared it to a similar survey they did last year, and they found that in 2020, a tripling of anxiety symptoms and a quadrupling of depression this year compared to just last year. 
Um, obviously, that's exaggerated by COVID-related stress. They go on in, the, in, the, in this report and they talk about people like feeling the weight of job loss. Or like one, one of the most emotionally devastating things that people have had to do is, is lay off or fire their employees. You talk about like people being stressed out who have to do that. Uh, of people who are like, uh, you know, on the front lines in medical care and stuff, like the anxiety that they're carrying, the, the financial stress, uh, the, the constant anxiety and grief around death. And on top of that, you, we already had an epidemic of loneliness in our country. And so the loneliness and the isolation that people have felt in 2020, it's no wonder that you see a tripling of anxiety symptoms and a quadrupling of depression this year. Um, CNN published an article this month just talking about how we cannot hide like the, the emotional devastation this has caused around the world. And they published an article uh, last month, this month that said in Japan, more people died from suicide last month, last month than from COVID in all of 2020. Last month. So we've seen, you can study this. Don't take my word for any of this. You study God's word and do your own research. But like, a lot of people are talking about the increase in suicide around the globe, including here in the United States. The CDC also, in that same report, they did some research to see how 2020 is affecting young adults in our culture. This is fascinating because what they're wanting to do is, is we're wanting to get on top of this because we realize like the way this is affecting young people is the way this is going to affect future generations and future leaders. You following that logic? So here's what they found out. They found uh, in, in their research a 63% increase among 18 to 24-year-olds in anxiety and depressive disorders in 2020. A quarter of those kids said they were using more drugs and alcohol to cope with pandemic-related stress, and a quarter of them said, quote, quote, they had seriously considered suicide in the past 30 days. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I attended a webinar uh, that was designed to equip pastors in how to help people heal from the trauma of 2020. And uh, in that webinar, they showed this graphic. I think I could put it on the screen. It's um, for you. But they showed this graphic that said the Disaster Distress Helpline reported an 890% increase in people reaching out for therapy and counseling support in 2020. Let me tell you what that number means. Therapists and counselors and pastors, people who are in the caring profession, are burning out. They're burning out. Pastors are the most depressed people on the planet. And it's because... You can't keep up with the needs. 890% increase in distress and people reaching out for help. A 40% increase in trauma symptoms. A 30% increase in mental health app downloads. All of that to say, 2020 has been hard to say the least. Can I get an amen, like some kind of feedback? It's been hard to say the least. And the world is feeling it. Now, right there in that place, that's where I want to talk about what I want to talk about. The world is feeling it. And the problem underneath the problem is that we don't know how to navigate what it is that we're feeling. Because we live in a culture that doesn't know what to do with our feelings. It's, it's not like um, we live in a culture where everybody was emotionally healthy before 2020. <laughs> like I had processed all my grief and hurt and trauma and childhood stuff, and like all my losses I dealt with, I had my anxiety under control, and then dang it, 2020 came along and threw me off course, right? If, if 2020 is the problem, then all you need is a new year to become a new you. But the stuff that's been following you around your whole life that 2020 kicked up 
guess what? That's going to follow you into 2021. And so the reality is kind of what I want to talk about this morning is that 2020 didn't cause the emotional health crisis as much as it exposed it and exaggerated what was already true about us, which is that we have all kinds of stuff cooking in us, myself included, that on my best day, most of the time I don't want to face, don't know how to face, don't know what to do with it. And so in in that way, 2020 is really confronting us with like one of our core struggles as human beings, which is that most of us don't know how to feel our feelings. And we have, I'll put myself, I'll say we because this is me, We have this lack of emotional resilience and emotional maturity and emotional health that is actually hijacking us from experiencing the life that Jesus came to give us, the life that you were made for, the life that you long for. And and a lot of that, as pastors, we, we really do believe that through this pandemic, God wants to do some deep work in us, like really, really deep work. And God wants to raise up a new generation of resilient disciples, And the big idea that I want to talk about this morning is that in order for us to become a resilient disciple, we have to first become emotionally resilient disciples. Like to to quote Pete Scazzaro, which I'm getting ahead of myself, there's there's an inextricable connection between emotional health and spiritual health. So if we're going to be spiritually vital, spiritually flourishing, spiritually resilient disciples, we have to first do some deep work and become emotionally healthy, emotionally resilient disciples. Are you guys following me in that? Okay, and so the question is, what does that look like? And to answer that, I want to start with Jesus, and let's just see what it looked like for him. Let's see, what, what did, how did Jesus uh, integrate emotional health into his relationship with the Father? So let's talk about that. Look with me at Matthew chapter 26. Hang with me because we're going to bounce around and look at several passages. We're going to start in Matthew 26. Um, just to set up the context, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows In this moment, he's just like moments away from being arrested and taken to the cross to be crucified for our sin. And so we pick up the story right there in verse 36. Matthew says this, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, You guys chill out and stay right here. I'm going to go over here and pray. And he takes Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and then he began to be sorrowful and troubled. I would underline that phrase, sorrowful and troubled. So let's, let's stop here. We're going to come back and unpack the rest of Matthew 26 in just a moment. For now, all I want you to notice is that Matthew right here doesn't just give us the surface level details about Jesus' life. Like what cool ministry thing did he just do today? Or like where, where did he come from and where is he going? Those details are important. But Matthew doesn't stay on the surface here. He actually gets beneath the surface and brings us into Jesus' emotional world. You see it right there on the screen. He's sorrowful and troubled, Matthew says. I like the New Living Translation, which says, quote, Jesus was anguished and distressed. Or I love the way old King Jimmy puts it. I think he really nails it here. He says, Jesus was sorrowful and very heavy. How many of you have ever felt very heavy? Yeah. How many of you came into this space this morning or who are watching online feel very heavy right now? Well, here's what Matthew wants you to see. Jesus sees you and he understands. He, he knows where you're at because he's been there in that emotional place before. And the reason we know that is because the Bible doesn't try to hide it from you. In fact, we see the emotional life of Jesus 
we see Jesus' insides coming to the outside and being displayed all over the New Testament. Let me just give you a few brief examples. I don't have time to really do what I want to do, but let's just try. Here's Luke chapter 7, verse 11. He says, At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. So in the Garden of Gethsemane, you see Jesus feeling very heavy and in distress. And here we see him spilling over with gladness and joy, full of joy, to the point that he breaks out in song and begins praising God. He's filled with joy and glee. Luke chapter 12, verse 50. Jesus tells his disciples, I have a baptism to undergo, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus is obviously talking about his baptism into the waters of suffering and death. He knows what's coming and he's dreading it. How many of you have ever felt that way? This week, you know what's coming, you're dreading it. Some of you have really hard conversations you're about to get ready to have this week. Some of you have like big news that's just bearing down on you that you don't want to face. Or what? How many of you know what's coming and you're dreading it? Have you ever been in that place? Jesus is in that place. He knows what's coming He's dreading it. He's aware. His soul is in distress. John chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. I love this one. Jesus goes to the temple in Jerusalem. Here's what we read. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and in the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So what does Jesus do? He made a whip out of cords And drove all of them uh, from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. I love that he drives the animals out. Like he's whipping animals. He's he's whipping everybody. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. You ever seen somebody so mad they grab a table and they flip it up and like everything on the table just goes chaos? He flips over the money tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And then in that moment, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal, zeal for your house will consume me. Put yourself in this scene and give me a little feedback. I actually want you to talk back to me. Talk back to me. What's Jesus feeling in this moment? He's angry. (laughs) He's angry. In fact, that word zeal you see on the screen is actually the Greek word for passion or anger. Jesus is consumed and filled with righteous anger in this moment. And this, we skipped this verse in Sunday school because we don't know what to do with Jesus' anger. And the reason we don't know what to do with Jesus' anger is because we don't know what to do with our anger. We don't know what to do with anger. It scares us. It freaks us out. Like So we skip over this. I mean, I often wonder, he's chasing people with whips. What's he going to do when he catches them? Like, is he, is he going to whip? Is he going to whoop them? Is he gonna, like, what's he doing? This is, this is just not the kind of Jesus that we typically, yeah, is this, there's nothing here you're going to see on the cover of a coffee mug. So let's do, let me give you one more, okay? John chapter 11. Jesus has just learned that one of his closest friends, Lazarus, has died, and um, Jesus has been trying to get there to see him before he passes away, but he doesn't make it in time. And so verse 32, we, we pick up the story. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now watch this. Watch the the empathic abilities of Jesus. He's connected to his heart. He's connected to Mary's heart. 
when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Jesus is like, I got to go see my friend. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb of his friend. Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the English Bible, but it's, it's perhaps one of the most powerful because, in fact, in this, in this phrase, deeply moved in spirit, this phrase you see in John 11, it literally means to snort like a horse. So how many of you ever seen somebody cry that hard? You ever seen that? Snorting, snotting, sobbing, heaving. What do we call that? That's an ugly cry. Thank you, Joey. We call that an ugly cry. Why don't we call that an ugly cry? Because we don't want to look at it. That's ugly. I don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. You just made me real uncomfortable because I don't know what to do with the feelings I have about the feelings you're having. So I'm going to distance myself from that. Call me when you're okay. You know, here's a Bible verse or two, and then sleep it off and call me tomorrow, right? Like, I don't, that's an ugly cry. I don't know how to get into that space with you. It's undignified, and it's right here. Jesus is inside, pulled to the outside, on display, recorded in the scriptures for everybody to see. This is what it means to be human. This guy is overwhelmed with grief at the loss of his friend. In fact, one commentator, a friend of ours, Jeff Schulte, says it like this. Here's a quote from, from Jeff. As he weeps, Jesus exhales a burst of air fueled by the energy of sadness, heartache, and passion that John described as like a horse snorting as it strains against that which constrains it. God was so sad that he had only the language of his tears and the cries of his heart in the form of an exhalation of deep sadness. Here's Jesus crying so hard, he's snorting like a horse, and he's doing it in front of everybody. Now, in sharing all these examples, here's the point, the the thing I want us to see. Quite simply this, Jesus Christ of Nazareth was not a robot. Jesus is not a machine who just knows how to get things done, who just came to accomplish his father's mission, and I'm just going to get it done. Like, Jesus is, not was, is a highly emotional being who displays a high level of emotional awareness. And this, right here, has massive implications for us. Because Jesus is showing us something profound about what God is like, and he's showing us something profound about what humans are like and how humans are made. You see, on the one hand, because Jesus is fully God, he's showing us in this what God is like. Did you know God is not an impersonal force? God is a person who feels and feels deeply. He has emotions. God is an emotional being. And Jesus in this moment, in these moments, is showing you what God is like. On the other hand, because as we just celebrated at Christmas... God became fully man. Jesus is not only fully God, but he's fully man. Jesus is showing us what humans are like. And he's showing us what it means to be human. And what we see in Jesus is that to be human is to feel. You should tweet that or write that or put that. That's on your coffee mug. To be human is to feel. 
We are, all day long, emotional beings created in the image of an emotional God. To be human is to feel. This is how God designed us. We like to think of ourselves, I like to think of myself as like just this competent, skilled, gifted, logical person. <laughs> Welcome to my uh, self-perception uh, sometimes. That's, that's how I like to think of myself as just this logical creature. But actually, in the created order, we are born emotional creatures before we are thinking creatures. You come out of the womb not processing life through your cognitive abilities and your skill. You come out of the womb processing life through your emotions, through your feelings. This is how God made us. And so in many ways, our emotions, I want you to get this, in many ways, our emotional center, the part of us that feels, is, the, is the, among the oldest, most core, most fundamental thing about us as human beings. And yet, tragically, we live in a culture that by and large teaches us to deny or dishonor that part of us. And the church has been discipled by the culture in that, by the way. Um. There are basically three ways, negative ways, distorted, broken ways that our culture teaches us and disciples us on how to deal with emotions. Let me, I'm going to give these to you quickly, okay? Three ways our culture teaches us to deal with emotions that are not the way of Jesus, okay? Number one, we live in a culture that teaches us to shame our feelings. So we shame ourselves for being afraid or sad or hurt or, or fill in the blank because that's quote unquote weak. That's weak sauce, right? So there's this way we talk to ourselves, or at least I do, that says, grow up, Adam, toughen up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, be a man, stop being such a baby. And for most of my life, honestly, this is how I have, and still to this day, um, talked to myself when I'm feeling vulnerable, when I'm feeling, when I'm feeling. This is how I talk to myself. And I call myself names in my head that I cannot repeat out loud up here, um, just for having feelings. By the way, there is a cultural Christian, I say cultural because it's not Christian, there's a cultural Christian version of this. In fact, I might argue Christians, we are the worst at this because we actually use the Bible to shame our feelings, which by the way is the definition of spiritual abuse. You know what spiritual abuse is? Spiritual abuse is using the gospel or theology or the Bible to shut yourself or someone down emotionally. They don't have permission to be human and you use the truth of God's word against them to shut them down from having feelings. We, we do this to ourselves all the time. And you give what you have, so you, this means if I do this to myself, I do this to other people. Um, so when my wife comes to me uh, anxious, sorry, honey, and wants, me, wants my empathy and wants me to listen and then move into like a space of praying with her, but I go straight into logic and strategy and try to fix it, what I'm trying to do is shut her down because I can't, I'm, I'm afraid of the feelings I have about her feelings. And so I'm going to use the Bible or something like that to kind of like shut it down, button it up, because I can't, I can't be in this space with you because I, I, don't know, I, I don't know how to feel my own feelings. So we shame ourselves. Um, 2014 was a really hard year for us. Uh, I went through uh, an emotional breakdown, a depression, I was never diagnosed as depressed, but everybody, every mentor I had was like, bro, you're depressed. <laughs> you're depressed. Uh, you got some sort of anxiety disorder. And I shamed the fool out of myself for it. Like, what's wrong with you, Adam? Um, you believe the gospel. You know God loves you, and you have the Spirit, and He's with you, and He's never going to leave you or forsake you, and you have a good marriage and healthy kids, and you have a job, and you're a pastor. 
for crying out loud. So shame on you for being sad and afraid. And you know what? If you just believe the gospel better or trust God more, you could pull yourself out of this pit. And I, I just, there's this, just to paraphrase Brene Brown, I just, I love, I love this line. There's a great line from her where she says this. We'll put it on the screen, I think. She says, the last thing human beings need in the midst of the struggle is shame for being human. How about that? That's not in the Bible, but that's true, and that means it came from God. <laughs> and, and yet we do this. We shame ourselves for being human and for having feelings about what we've lived. Number two, second way our culture teaches us to deal with our feelings is simply to minimize them, right? So either you shame them or you minimize them. So look on the bright side. Um, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? <laughs> I love that. Uh, I don't know, maybe. Um, this is hard, but you know, everything happens for a reason, right? That's another one. It's another good one. Um, or we compare our suffering to other people's suffering and we say things like, well, what I'm going through is not that bad. Or it could be worse, we say. And again, there's a cultural, uh, there's a cultural Christian version of this too. We spiritualize our emotional pain. Um, how you doing, brother? Oh, better than I deserve. Because what I deserve is hell. Well, that's theologically true, but like, I'm just trying to check on you emotionally because you just told me like three days ago you lost your job. I'm just trying to see how you're doing. Like, by the way, that's a real conversation I had with a pastor a couple of weeks ago. Like, I'm just trying to, I get that theologically, what you just said. Like, that holds water. That's true. That's great. But like, I'm just talking about right now, like, how is it with your soul, man? How are you doing? How are you doing? We don't want to go there. And so we'll spiritualize it and we'll, again, use the truth about God to, to actually, like, minimize it, to minimize it. There's this thing we do in cultural Christianity where we want to skip. And I, listen, I, I keep saying we because I do this. I'm, I'm not talking to you as an emotionally healthy, like, perfect person. Like, I'm shoulder to shoulder with you trying to figure this out. And on my best days, I'm not very good at any of this stuff, which in some sense means I shouldn't be up here talking about it. In another sense, it means I'm the perfect candidate to stand up here along with any of our other pastors and kind of talk about, talk about this because we're trying this on. So, but there's this thing we do in cultural Christianity where we skip Friday and Saturday, the death and the sitting in the death of Jesus, and we want to jump straight to Sunday. Jesus is alive, and the kingdom of God is here, and one day he's going to wipe away every tear, and there'll be no more sadness, no more sorrow, and God works together for good, you know, all things together for good for those who love him, and that means that right now I can talk myself out of my sadness. And listen, what I, everything I just said about Jesus is true, Oh my goodness, that's our hope. And we should preach that. Listen to me very carefully. We should preach that. We must preach that to ourselves and to one another all day long. Where we go wrong is when you use the truth about God to try to minimize the truth about you and where you are emotionally and what you're going through. And in fact, the degree to which the gospel is good news is the degree to which you're able to have your feelings with God in the first place. Look, the gospel doesn't exist to shut down your heart from feeling. The gospel exists to draw your heart into relationship with God, which requires you to be able to feel. All I'm trying to say is we, we do this thing where we shame our feelings or we minimize our feelings, and the culture disciples us to do this. The third thing we, uh, that I, I want to point out quickly, the way the culture teaches us to deal with our emotions is simply to distract 
or numb our feelings, right? If you can, if you can just stay busy enough to keep your, yourself on the surface of your life, you'll never have to get beneath the surface and face your emotional reality. So, man, let's stay busy, right? Every space in our lives needs to be filled up with work and commitments and entertainment and screens. And we use food and sex and porn and drugs and alcohol and sleep and video games and shopping and exercise and whatever we can to help us escape and numb these vulnerable emotional places in our soul. And let me tell you something. When you spend all your energy trying to uh, manage and control your feelings, your feelings end up managing and controlling you. And they get you into a place where you're, you're burned out and you're addicted and your relationships are so severely damaged. So this is, this is, this is, this is our cultural way of how we deal with our emotions. You shame them, you minimize them, or you distract and you numb them. And here's the application, okay? Here's the key takeaway or the point that I'm trying to make. As disciples of Jesus, our goal is not to do that. <laughs> but as disciples of Jesus, our goal is to have the same relationship to our feelings that Jesus had, to his feelings. And for Jesus, it's really clear that emotional health is not only important, but emotional health is actually essential to your spiritual health. To, to quote uh, Pete Scazzaro, we'll put it on the screen, he says it like this. Emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Let's, un- let's unpack that for just, just a second. Give me a second on that. So look at that. It's impossible to be uh, spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Okay, Jesus makes it really clear that the two greatest commandments and the essence of the spiritual life and the goal of Christian maturity is love, right? Loving God and loving others. That's how you sum up the whole Christian life, everything that God commanded. So the spiritual life then is all about relationships. It's all about abiding in God's love and receiving God's love, then being changed by God's love so that you become love. You actually become the image of love so that you're able to love God and love others like Jesus. That's the essence of the spiritual life and spiritual maturity. Now, that being said, if that's true, let me ask you, have you ever tried to do close relationship with a person who remains emotionally unhealthy and immature? You ever tried to do love with that person? Like, you ever tried to do close relationship with a person who remains perpetually emotionally immature and unhealthy? My wife would say, yeah, I've definitely tried that. It's very difficult. It's very difficult. Um, I, I've mentioned 2014 earlier, and I've, I've shared my story before with you, but I've been the guy, and on, and on a lot of days, this is why I need people in my life that know me, like our pastors and my friends and my DNA. Like, I can still be the guy that looks spiritually mature on the outside, but I'm an emotional wreck on the inside. And, you know, around 2014, I was pastoring in Kansas City, big church, two campuses. Um, I'm teaching, counseling, leading, pouring myself out. Um, I've got a couple of, uh, you know, seminary degrees for what that's worth. Uh, and and uh, on the surface, I've got this successful life and this successful ministry. And I say on the surface. And by every external measure, people would look at me and probably say, that's a, that's a spiritually mature guy. I would look at me a lot of times and say, that's a spiritually mature guy. 
But the people closest to me who had to actually do life with me experienced something different in relationship with me. I was constantly anxious. My spontaneous reactions to life, life that was coming at me, uh, were not very Christ-like. I'm touchy. I'm irritable. I'm grouchy. I'm anxious. I'm defensive. I'm angry. I'm not fully present. And listen to me. I'm learning this the hard way. I don't care how smart you are how gifted you are, or how great of a leader or strategist or whatever, or counselor or teacher or whatever you are, you can't love God and people well if that's where you're at. Don't take my word for it. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul, this is so convicting and challenging to me. I'm going to paraphrase him. Uh, He says in verse 1, I don't care if you can speak in the tongues of angels. If you don't love people and know how to be in relationship with people, You're a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Translation, you're annoying (laughs) and you're disruptive. How disruptive would it be if we're trying to have a gathering in here and somebody rolls in a gong and starts beating it? That would be disruptive. That would be annoying. Paul says, I don't care if you've got like speaking the tongues of angels, if you're just the most fluent in the gospel person ever and you don't love people, you don't know how to do love, you're annoying and disruptive. He goes on in verse 2 and he says, I don't care if you have the gift of prophecy. If you're the greatest, wisest theologian of all time who can fathom all mysteries and the knowledge of God. I don't care how much theology you got in that brain of yours. You can even have faith that can move mountains. If you're not a person of love, you're what? I am nothing, Paul says, if I don't have love. Nothing. He continues in verse 3 and he says this. I don't care if you give all your money to the poor and you give your body over to hardship, meaning, in other words, you sacrifice yourself for the church. You go out of your way, you serve your brains out. But you don't have love? You gain nothing. And actually, a better translation is you remain empty. You're basically a shell, Paul says. What is so challenging to me, particularly about a pastor, is this blows up my framework. Because what Paul does is he blows up all of our metrics for measuring spiritual health in the American church. (laughs) Think about how we measure spiritual health and maturity in the American church. Bible knowledge? Are they fluent in the gospel? Big faith. Can they take bold risks? Big faith that moves mountains? Giving. Please, Paul, don't go there. Like he He attacks giving. they They can be so faithful and generous in their giving. Serving giving their body over to hardship. Again, all these are good, beautiful things. But in the American, necessary things too, by the way. But in the American church culture, we look at people who have these marks and we label them as spiritually healthy and mature disciples. Paul says not necessarily. If they can't do relationships with people and love people well, they're nothing. Paul's words, not mine. According to Paul, knowing and doing all the right stuff for God is not the measure of spiritual health. If you want to measure spiritual health, you have to get beneath the surface into your emotional world because it's out of that place that we end up doing life and relationships. There is like a whole section here in my notes on the neuroscience of this that I want to get into, and I'm actually going to skip it, okay? I'm going to skip it, and if you want to talk about it, I'd love to get together with you and talk. I would, talk, I would Jared and I, all of us, we'll get to go talk your head off about this stuff, about what we're learning. 
but I'm going to skip it. All I'm going to say is if you want to be spiritually healthy and mature, we have to follow the way of Jesus and practice and integrate emotional health into our discipleship, into our relationship with God and into our relationship with others because that is the way of Jesus. Again, the question we're obviously trying to answer is what does that look like? Well, to close, here's what I want to do. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 26, back to Jesus in the garden. Let's take a closer look at this passage. And what we do is when you look at this passage more carefully, you begin to see this basic pattern of emotional health that marked Jesus' life. And as his disciples, it's a pattern that we are to adopt. So here's the pattern. Step one, uh, feel your feeling. Step two, tell the truth about your feeling. Step three, invite God into your feeling. I want to say a brief word about each of these, draw some implications, and we'll be done. And by the way, I owe most of everything I'm about to say to Chip Dodd in, in a book he wrote called The Voice of the Heart, and then to Jeff Schulte and his discipleship of us in that. So first step, here we go. In becoming an emotionally healthy disciple of Jesus is you have to allow yourself to feel your feeling. Step one. So look at verse 37, Matthew 26. Remember, Jesus is moments away from going to the cross. And in verse 37, he tells his disciples, you guys stay here. I'm going to go give myself some space to have a minute. He takes a couple of his disciples, his little DNA group with him. And here's the part I want you to see. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. And I would circle or underline that word be. Because you know what it tells us? Be sorrowful and troubled. It tells us that Jesus is not up in his head in this moment. Jesus is not strategizing and grasping for control. He's not numbing or avoiding. He's not shaming himself for what he's feeling. He's not using Bible verses to talk himself out of what he's feeling. Jesus is just being in this moment. And he allows himself to be where he's at emotionally. Jesus goes to the place of emotional pain and he sits in it. All the fear and the loneliness and the grief and the hurt and the rejection, why does he do that? Because Jesus was emotionally healthy and emotionally mature. And the reason God puts this in the Bible is so as disciples of Jesus, we can learn from Jesus and become like Jesus and live how he lived. Jesus is inviting us to live wholehearted lives. And to do that, we have to allow ourselves to feel our feelings. We have to give ourselves the space in life, like Jesus in the garden, to let our, let our hearts catch up to our bodies and just be wherever you are emotionally. I realize, as I say that, that's a very scary place. Because once you go there, like, what's going to happen next? Where, where are my emotions going to take me? Well, Adam Young is a therapist and an author and a podcaster that I have a ton of respect for, and I love this line. Here's what he says about feeling your feelings. He says, I'll put it on the screen, the goal of feeling your feelings is flow. Ride the wave and let it take you where you need to go, where you need to go. Your feelings are trying to take you where you need to go. You might not stop crying and shaking for two hours, but if you allow yourself to feel your feelings, you'll be in a different place on the river than you were two hours ago. And check this out. You've put yourself in a place where your deepest needs can be met. What Adam Young is getting at is that when you feel your feelings, it opens the door up to your needs. Not just like your need for food or clothing and shelter, but like your deepest need for God and others. Behind every feeling is a basic human need 
that, that you, that's only met through relationship. We've, we've adapted this chart from Jeff Schulte. Maybe we can put it on the screen. There it is. So on the left, you see feelings, and feelings open the door to needs. So your feelings are not something that's wrong with you. They're getting at like basic core part of your humanity and, and true needs that everybody has. If you're hurt, that's not because something's wrong with you. If you're hurt, that's because you need healing. If you're lonely, you need intimacy and connection. If you're sad, you need comfort. If you're anger, you have a voice that needs to be heard. If you're afraid, you need a safe place and refuge. If you feel shame, you need affirmation and approval. If you feel guilt, you need grace and forgiveness. If you feel glad, C.S. Lewis says you need to celebrate. That's like consummation of your gladness. And so the whole point is, if you can't feel your feelings, you can't have your needs met. Think about it. If you... If you can be hurt, you can be healed. If you can't feel hurt, you can't be healed. If you can be sad, you can be comforted. But if you can't feel sad, you can't receive comfort. If you can feel lonely, then you can can receive intimacy and connection. But if you can't feel lonely, you can't do relationships. If you can't feel any of these things, you can't do relationships. Because to deny your feelings is to deny your needs. And you can't have relationships without needs. So, like, this is, this is the goal of feeling our feelings. Now, it gets worse, by the way, because if you deny your feelings, not only are you denying your basic needs, and you can't have your needs met by God and others, but your feelings don't actually go away. They just get worse. They grow into something toxic that poisons your relationships with God and others. So we'll put the rest of the... There it is. Your feelings become... If you, if you refuse to feel your feelings, they become impaired. They don't go away. Hurt becomes bitterness and resentment. Loneliness becomes false connection. Now you're trying to satisfy your loneliness through porn or like whatever. Sadness becomes self-pity, which is me trying to make you feel sorry for me. I'm trying to get you to do my sadness for me. Anger becomes depression. All kinds of research that connect depression to anger. Fear becomes anxiety and rage. Rage is me trying to get bigger than the fear that's inside of me. Shame becomes toxic shame. Guilt becomes toxic guilt. Gladness becomes sensual pleasure. And so, if what I'm trying, what what I want you to see is, you take a look at that left hand column there, the impairments. Nine times out of ten, this is the stuff that causes us to sin against God and others. Am I right? This is the stuff that gets in the way of your spiritual life, right there. So I would dare say, okay. Don't necessarily quote me on this. I would dare say most of the sinful behaviors and patterns in our lives are just coping mechanisms for feelings that we don't know how to feel or want to navigate. It's the stuff on the left-hand column. It's me trying to, you know, the reason why, the reason why guys, the reason why you eat the tub of ice cream or you overeat or overspend or whatever is because mostly, most of the time it's because you don't know what to do with your sadness. Most of the time, the reason why guys are looking at porn is because they don't know what to do with their shame and their feelings of being unwanted. Nine times out of ten, your sinful behaviors are just coping mechanisms for your feelings that you don't know how to feel. So goal number one in becoming an emotionally healthy, emotionally, spiritually healthy disciple is you have to give yourself space to feel your feelings. And I know that none of this is easy. Man, it requires you to slow down. It requires you to make space. It requires you to grow in self-awareness. It requires you to go back and do some work through your story. And I just want you to know, just as a commercial, to help with that, um, in February, we're launching something called the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality Course. It's an eight-week course. We encourage everybody to take it. Take it with your 
uh, missional community. Take it with your DNA, but it's eight weeks. We're going to work through all of this. How do, you, how do you grow into an emotionally healthy, spiritually healthy disciple of Jesus who knows how to first and foremost feel your feelings? Step two, that's the first step, feel your feelings. Step two, I'll move a little quicker here, is that you have to tell the truth about what it is that you're feeling. And I love this. There's this natural progression in Matthew 26. In verse 37, Jesus allows himself to feel his feelings. In the very next verse, he tells the truth about his feelings. Look, he opens his mouth and says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus is vulnerable, and he tells the truth about what he feels. Look at, first of all, look at what he says. I am overwhelmed. How many of you have ever felt overwhelmed? How many of you ever felt embarrassed that you're overwhelmed? Yeah. I've been so embarrassed to admit when I'm overwhelmed. Not Jesus. <laughs> According to Jesus, emotional health is, is not measured by the fact that you never get overwhelmed. Did you hear what I said? Emotional health is not measured by the fact that you never get overwhelmed. According to Jesus, emotional health is measured by the fact that your ability to be honest about being emotionally overwhelmed. And then Jesus says, my sorrow is overwhelmed, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. Look at this, to the point of death. I'm, I'm, I'm so sad and scared I could die. The sorrow is crushing my life out. Anybody ever hurt like that? Jesus gives you permission today to talk about that. Did you know that? Some of you have things that have been done to you or things that you've done, and you don't feel like you have permission to talk about that. Because either you don't want to dishonor the people involved and you feel like you have to, some weird sense that you have to protect them or it's because you're so afraid of going to that emotional place that you're going to get so overwhelmed you'll never come back from it. And Jesus right here in this scene is giving you permission to open up and actually talk about those things and promise that the grace of God will be enough for you in it. And he, he, This is what he does. He opens his mouth and he says, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm going through. This is where I'm at. Jesus wants you to know you don't have to carry that alone. You can open, today's the day to open your mouth and begin to talk about that. And if you'll do that, if you're willing to feel your feelings, tell the truth about your feelings, then and only then can you encounter the presence of God in that place. That brings us to step three. Invite God into your feeling. Look at verse 39. Jesus uh, says this, going a little further, Jesus fell with his face to the ground. So now he collapses on the ground. And he prays, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. I love this line. This is everything right here. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Notice Jesus takes his feelings and he turns them into prayer. Do you see that? He takes his feelings. He doesn't just sit in them. And, and, and he is overwhelmed, but it's in that place that he takes his emotions and transforms them into prayer. And so here's the principle. Okay, write this down. According to Jesus, feelings are places to meet with God. That's all they are. They're not, they're, not, they're not good or bad. They're just places to meet with God. And this is what we see all through the Psalms, right? God gave us the Psalms to teach us how to do this. <laughs> the Psalms are just ordinary men and women like you and me. It's not the spiritual giants. It's just ordinary men and women who are feeling their feelings, telling the truth about their feelings, and inviting God to meet them in their feelings. And because he's a good father, he always does. If you have younger kids, by the way, they're also trying to teach you how to do this. Um, when my kids get hurt, they run to the father. They run to me or Carrie. 
so that we can hold them and kiss the boo-boo, right? Even if it's just emotional boo-boo, like if their feelings were hurt, they're going to run to me. When they're sad and they need comfort, they come to their parents. When it's in the middle of the night and they're afraid, they've had a bad dream, the boogeyman, whatever, they cry out and, and their father comes running. Like they're inviting us into where they are emotionally, which is inviting us into relationship with them. It pulls my heart into deeper relationship with my kids when they share their feelings with me, when they cry out to me in their emotional places. And if that's true of an imperfect father, how much more is that true of God the Father? He wants to meet you where you are. And here's, here's where I want to land the plane. He wants to lead you to a place of surrender. Jesus, I love it, is honest with the Father. Do you see that? I don't like where I'm at, Dad. Don't like it. <laughs> I know, like, before the foundation of the world, whatever, we mapped this out. We were all good. We were, we, we, we were all on the same page. I don't like this anymore. I'm not having any fun. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be here. This hurts. I don't want to go through this. I would rather go over it or under it or around it, but I don't want to go through it. But then he gets to this place, and we actually don't know how long it takes him to get there in this moment, but he gets some because he's feeling his feelings, listen, and he's, he's ta- t- telling the truth about it, and he's transforming it into prayer, and he's talking to the Father about it. Through that process, some, some mysterious thing happens in his soul where he gets to this place of surrender, where he says, I trust you. At the end of the day, I trust you. Not as I will, but as you will, your will be done. When faced with his limits as a man, Jesus gives God his trust and his obedience. Rather than fighting for control or trying to escape or fix the situation, he just surrenders to the Father's will. And he trusts that the Father will love him and take care of him and be with him through this journey. And it's so important for us to learn this from Jesus because surrender to God is the true beginning of emotional spiritual health. I'm going to say that one more time because if you miss anything, this is what you have to hear. Surrender to God is the beginning of emotional spiritual health. It's not just the beginning. It's the end and it's like the sustaining energy. You're never going to get anywhere if you don't get to this place of God, not my will, but your will be done. And so to close, I want to, I want to read this short quote from Tremper Longman. He's, he's my favorite Old Testament scholar and We'll put this on the screen. He says this. Ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. And reality is where we meet God. You will encounter the truth about God when you are able to to be honest about the truth about you. I'm sad. God, I need you. I'm hurt. God, I need you. I'm afraid. God, I need you. I'm, I'm, I'm plagued with guilt because of this thing I've done. Or I'm overwhelmed with shame. God, I need you. And so the invitation for all of us this morning is just to embrace reality and invite God to meet you in that place. And, and for some of you this morning, maybe reality is great. I hope so. I really do. I'm not even skeptical about it. If you want to tell me things are great, I'll believe you. I hope you're like so full on holiday food and turkey and festivities and stuff. I hope you're coming in here in a great place. I really do. But for some of you, that's just, that's just not your reality. And it won't be this afternoon or it won't be tomorrow. Um, there's, 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 for some of you, your soul just feels in distress. 
And the invitation for you this morning is, you know, you feel overwhelmed, you feel scared to death. The invitation is for you to embrace reality that Jesus sees you, he understands you, he's inviting you to step into your own psalm and to bring your whole self, your whole heart before him. And he promises that in that place, if you show up honestly, you don't have to, that's the great thing about prayer. Prayer is the only place where you get to take off the mask completely, like this mask, and just show up honestly before God and tell the truth about your life. And he promises that when you do, you don't have to pretend or perform. He already sees you. He will meet you in that place with, with all his grace, all his comfort, all his love, the full weight of his presence. And so the degree to which you're willing to do that, by the way, to give him accesses to the deep places in your soul, is the degree to which you're going to experience his presence and his love and the deep healing work he wants to do in you coming out of a year like 2020. And as we transition to communion, I'm going to, I'm going to go invite the band to come back up. And I, I, want, to, I want to invite you not to, don't get too busy here. Don't, don't, don't lose me in this moment because I want, to, I want to finish out Matthew 26. We know what happens. Jesus gets up off the ground um, like a real man who's very vulnerable and scared, but who now has the courage and the passion to walk through his feelings because he wants to please his father and he knows his father loves him. He's willing to go do whatever, whatever he has to do because that's true. And so Jesus stands up and we know what he does. He goes to the cross and Jesus gives his life to pay the price for our sin, to rescue us from sin, to bring us into relationship with God where we're fully known, truly loved. And what we celebrate each week in communion is you take uh, this little, uh, it's not really bread, it's more like a, a wafer or a piece of a styrofoam or something. But as you take it, it represents Christ's body broken for you. And this juice represents his blood shed for you. And what you realize in the moment, that you want to know why, you want to know why the, one, one of the reasons why the cross is so beautiful. The cross proves to you that whatever ugly, like emotional reality or emotional thing you're going through, it's always safe to meet God. Because the cro- on the cross, we were fully exposed. Every deep, dark secret you have was blared from Golgotha's hill. I already know the worst thing about you. (laughs) And you already know the worst thing about me, which is that we're so bad, so broken, so unbelievably unable to help ourselves that God himself had to die for us. And we're so crazy loved that God himself was glad to die for us. And so the cross is the proof that like in whatever space you're in, God is happy to meet you in that place. And he only meets you with love and grace. And so if you're in this room and that's your hope, Jesus is your hope, I want to invite you to Celebrate communion with us. Take this meal. Remember God's love for you. Remember, let the good news of the gospel sink down from like this academic level into your bones and just feel the the presence of Christ warming you with his love. Taste and see that he's good, that he loves you, that he's always faithful to keep his promises. And if you're in this room and, and you wouldn't say that Jesus is your hope, we're so glad you're here. If you're watching online and you wouldn't say that's where you're at, we're so glad to have you. This is a safe place for you to journey, and this is, this is the one thing that we would just invite you to, to not participate in, not because we're trying to exclude you, but because this, this meal is a symbol of, of your faith in Jesus. And if that's not where you are, just kind of sit in this place and, 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 and check in with yourself emotionally and see what's going on with you and process, like, what would it look like for me to surrender all of my life to Jesus right now in this moment? And if you would do that, man, we would love to talk with you about that. I know Luke and Jared and myself will be available after the service, or you can talk with whoever you came with, but we would love to sit with you, pray with you, and navigate that conversation with you. I'm going to pray. We'll take communion, and then we'll sing one more song. So let's
Let's go to the Lord together. Father, we ask right now that, um, man, you would meet us where we are. That the joy of your love would, would become explosively alive in us. Help us just to be honest with ourselves and with you. Help us to walk out of here with a deeper um, connection to you, a deeper sense that you're with us and that you love us. I pray that we would carry that into this next year. And ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.